Hello, friends. My name is Todd Hunter. Welcome to the C4SO podcast. On our episode today, we have an enjoyable conversation with my friend, missiologist, Alan Hirsch. Some of you will know of Alan's work in his book, The Forgotten Ways, or in the book that he did with Michael Frost, The Shaping of Things to Come. In my view, Alan has made a unique contribution to missiological thinking in the last 15 years. His practical insistence that the church find a way to actually do missiology, I think has been a fresh voice. In today's conversation, he and I review some of the best thinking of late 20th century missiology and how it has or has not come into the practices of the church. We talk about the centrality of Jesus to all of this. And then at the end, I invite Alan to make an assessment of modern Anglicanism and the strengths and weaknesses that we bring to the intersection of ecclesiology and missiology. I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation. So 5 p.m. where I am, uh, 10 a.m. where you are, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Tell everybody where you are. Well, I'm currently in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of my hometown. Yeah. And of course, I've been in the, the States prior to COVID. I've been about 14 years in the States. So, and originally from South Africa, as my accent might give away. Yeah. So I'm the uh-huh. one Jew from a Jewish background. I don't know <laughs> yeah. where I'm from anymore, Todd, but I'm back in Melbourne. You're like Waldo, right? Where's Waldo? <laughs> where is he? In- <laughs> yeah. Good thing people can't see us on screen. They can only hear us because I, I probably make you turn a little red here. But, you know, I've uh, I've been a fan for a long time. and And I often think when I think seriously about the contributions that you and, and of course your uh, friend and colleague, uh, Michael Frost have made in my life through your writings. I think you probably will remember Alan that in the late seventies, like 78, 79, I did my internship with John Wimber, the founder of Vineyard churches. And at that time, uh, remember he was still working with Pete Wagner at what was then called the Charles E. Fuller evangelistic Center for Evangelism and Church Growth or something like that. You know, in those days, you know, Wimber, therefore, and or Pete introduced me to McGavern and Newbigin and, you know, people like Roland Allen and that, you know, that kind of generation. And then because I say of myself, I've always been kind of an amateur enthusiast, you know, missiologist. I'm not a trained missiologist. But then I think of like Bosch and Roxborough and Hunsberger and Guter and, you know, John Douglas Hall and Wilbur Shank and sort of that generation. And then to me comes people like you and Michael and David Fitch. And so what I'm wondering about as we get started here, I know you're attached to that history uh, both academically and, and otherwise. But as you look back now over the 10 or 15 years or so that you've been making a contribution, um, like, how do you think about it? Like, what is the contribution you think you guys have made to that history? And then secondly, we'll come to, and then how do you see the conversations changed in the last 15 years? So uh, well, I know you're humble. I tell all our guests you're humble, but I still, as you reflect on it, and you look back now, what do you, what feels like the contribution God's used you guys to make? You know, you know, it is really bizarre to be even named in a string of names like that. Uh, yeah. And I should come out and confess that I actually am not an academic and like yourself, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not a formally trained missiologist actually. Right. Um, I know. Mine is much more, uh, uh, I think I'm ADD enough to see pretty patterns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, and then also to uh, sense the significance of key ideas. Uh, yeah. And one of them, of course, being missions. 
uh, and a certain way of doing mission. Uh, but yes, I think, you know, like um, the unfolding of the mission, the missional conversation yeah. uh, is exceedingly important. The, the, the problem is that it, having been around now for, oh, who knows, I mean, a good 30 years, you know, if you mm-hmm. date it from New Begins kind of writings, right. Bosch, of course, before that, all around the same mm-hmm. time. You know, the danger of that is that it, its presence we become over familiar with. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, I think. Todd, it's one the it's one the intellectual conversation. I mean, how do you disagree that God is a missionary God? I mean, the sentness of right. God, stuff that what these great missiologists came up with, and so I think there's a cognitive recognition. Almost all decent leaders in the church. I mean, it's hard to disagree with it. The problem is, I think that we uh, overall did not address uh, ecclesiology. Mm. Uh, and and the ecclesiology doesn't suit. So it's one idea to have missional theology and agree with it right. intellectually, but then, you know, so you can have missional Presbyterians, but then you've got to deal with right. Presbyterianism, which is right. another issue entirely. Because Presbyterianism, yeah. if I'm I'm not trying to just just example, yeah, um, uh, is geared towards another form of outcome. It's not geared. It's mm-hmm. non-missional ecclesiology, um, and that's the problem I think we face now. Uh, we've uh, certainly in shaping things to come and and my other significant i think my most significant work is the forgotten ways yeah uh, i've tried to suggest that there's a different way of being missional and that is the movemental form movements yeah. are i believe the most quintessential expression of mission because they're moving yeah they they embody sentness uh, and therefore uh, it's a concrete example of how sentence, and I think our best example of how sentence expresses itself. I actually yeah. think we still got to win that conversation. Yeah. Were you guys self-consciously um, shifting the conversation from missional to ecclesial? And how did your guys' thinking uh, align with or add to the work that Guter and Hunsberger and uh, Roxburgh and those guys were doing in missional church? So, good question. Um, it shows actually not an amateur in this. Actually, very few people pick up, you know, the, the distinction from a new begin to you know the Guder level. Yeah, uh, I think what the Church in Our Culture Network took uh, it was New Begin's challenge, um, which kind of really was trying to say how you know how do we take a missionary stance in relationship to our, our broader cultural context, the West. And actually, the, the the church in our culture network did try and bring the ecclesial dimension into into the play, mm-hmm. but I honestly don't think they, as a whole, managed to land that because they they didn't provide a platform and a practice that was consistent mm-hmm. with the core paradigm. So again, they lacked the practical imp- application of, of mm-hmm. missional, and so they they never left left this kind of muscle memory of Christendom. Uh, yeah you know deeply entrenched in their systems mm. but the problem is the systems now use the language which makes it masks it so if everything's missional then nothing's missional and right so. so yeah um so but you know i think good is a one you know all those guys are wonderful humans oh yes of course yeah and uh and and i think they d- did the contribution i think our job now is to 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 pick it up and land that plane um yeah. and just to answer the question about how ma- maybe mike and myself I think yeah we you know we were trying um, uh, in writing shaping for instance um, set out to start a thing called Forge Mission Training Network which to yes. try and help 
church planters particularly take a missionary mm-hmm. stance, not just simply assume our missiology, our ecclesiology, yeah. and front load it. We were saying like you do mission and the church comes out of your experience of mission. And so we were trying to kind of give some nuance to that. Um, boy, I wish I could say it was a raving success. Um, it's been hard, but I think partly yeah. because we, you know, less, you know, we didn't address again that deep muscle memory and change the paradigm. Yeah, which I was still trying to do. My my latest book on metanoia will try and deal with that. And you know, yeah. how do we change? How do we experience yeah. metanoia or paradigm shift? So I hear you saying that there are very strong default positions in the life of Christian leaders and Christian congregations yes. that takes a lot of work to confront. And it's destabilizing. It will probably put you in some sort of a liminal moment. Uh, it could put a leader's uh, leadership at risk. You know, it could yes. be divisive in a church. There's, I can imagine, there's nine reasons why people might not want to take the journey that you've been holding before us. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, no, no one less. I, I wish I could quote him exactly, but Machiavelli said this: "Is that." You know that the person trying to change the system will experience uh, significant uh, resistance from those who are uh, have vested interest in protecting the system. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. but you will only have half-hearted responses from from those who may be less, you know, connected because they still derive their sense of self and yeah. their importance from the system itself. And the problem is, let's say it more practically. Uh, it's hard to get someone to understand something, Todd, when their salary depends on them not understanding it. Mm, yeah. The problem is I actually think that most leaders now are very deeply vested in the, the prevailing system, which has just been shown up in, in the COVID challenge, you know, which mm-hmm. I think was an apocalyptic moment in that it revealed um, fragilities mm-hmm. within our physiology, in our Sunday dependence. Yeah. Uh, a relation, you know, connection to pulpits or sacraments or whatever, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that was challenged because we couldn't get together. And I think it, it was an opportunity, I think, for us to look into the system and change it. And sadly, again, I think you know, everyone just wants to go back to what was before, but then we will not have dealt with what God has been trying to reveal to us in, in this mm-hmm. apocalyptic moment. I think we need to be very, very um, open, metanoic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, what God might be speaking to us at this moment, and to use the opportunity to leverage change. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that book. So, to part B of my uh, question, Alan, if I, I don't remember when your first first book came out, but uh, let's just pick a number. Let's, let's say in the last fifteen years, how have you seen this conversation change? Actually, let's date it by uh, the publishing of Missional Church, which I think was ninety eight or ninety nine. So now you're 14, 15 years. How, how do you think either the conversation has changed or you think it should have changed in ways that it hasn't? Um, yeah, so um, I, I say, look, with, I think with, you know, when you talk about Fitch, Frost, and myself mm-hmm. and others, including yeah. myself, and I think, the, again, the attempt was made to kind of put the cookies on the lower shelf. And yeah. I think mm-hmm. the... You know, much of the conversation prior to that was very heady. Yeah. And, um, you know, you probably needed, you know, a fair bit of study to be able to interpret the material um, properly. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think it was, it, there's been an attempt to make it more practical. So for mm-hmm. us, it's kind of reached into how you plant churches, 
uh, nuanced those kind of conversations, discipleship. And if I'd used maybe the typology in the Forgotten Ways, which I um, identify six elements there that are critical to movements, um, mm -hmm. uh, Christology, um, focus on Jesus, discipleship, disciple making, incarnational forms of mission, fivefold form of leadership in ministry mm -hmm. to initiate and sustain, organic systems which relates to how we organize and how we decentralize instead of hierarchicalize. Uh, and then, of course, liminality communitas, our capacity to engage in risk and challenge yeah. and thrive. Mm -hmm. yeah. If I use those as six elements to say what's happened in the last 15 years, I think there has been conversations taking place around yeah. those things. Mm -hmm. People are talking about discipleship, disciple-making, you know, quite substantially now. There's whole conferences and things on, on that, which is great, really, really good. There are uh, some agencies that take incarnational forms of mission seriously. Mm -hmm. I think not enough, and it's still a great challenge, but at least that's a conversation. Um, APEST is alive and well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's probably the most fruitful uh, of the conversations. Remind uh, listeners who may not know what APEST is, okay, what it so, is. Uh, APEST is the Ephesians 4 typology of ministry, uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. as kind of a typology of both the ministry of Jesus bequeathed to the church and therefore mm -hmm. would be bodied and expressed in the church. Um, I mean, this is fruitful. I mean, we're having, uh, I'm dealing with everything from Catholic right through to Lutheran, ba Southern Baptists use this to train their church planters now. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. And as you know, so that is really quite remarkable. So if you break it down into the discrete, you know, areas, I think there are conversations going, what we need to do now is to bring them all together. Mm. Because in my theory, at least, when all six of those elements start to come together and cook, yeah. you then begin to see, you know, paradigmatic transformational change. That yeah. hasn't really happened much in the West yet. There are yeah. some agencies that do two, three, maybe four, but yet have get to six of those elements. But when that yeah. happens, something inevitable will happen in my, in my yeah. opinion. That's the Alan Hirsch we know and love right there. <laughs> so um, I hadn't planned on doing this in my show notes, Alan, but a minute ago you were just using uh, Presbyterians as an example. Um, our audience is probably, I'm just guessing here, uh, three quarters uh, Anglican clergy and then a quarter so of it was easy to pick on the quarter of others. But but actually, <laughs> I want to ask, I want to actually invite you to help help us Anglicans think through something. This won't be news to you. Uh, it's it's a bit of a caricature, but only for the sake of time. That Anglicans are very high on ecclesiology and want to say that it's like a first form, but that often has to do with things like liturgy and vestments and church calendar and things like that. So ecclesiology gets things up, gets thought of in that way. And, and Anglicans often think of evangelicals as having sort of like no ecclesiology, right? So again, I know this is a caricature just for the sake of time, but if the Orthodox, the Catholics, the Anglicans have a very high ecclesiology that in the Anglican sense sometimes makes mission hard. Um, I know you've run into Anglicans all over the world all the time. You happen to have a friend who's a bishop like me, but how would you quickly just assess the... Um, not so much pros and cons, but um, uh, like, how, how do you think Anglicans maybe need to think this through to not have an ecclesiology that's in conflict with missiology? 
Whoa. Okay. So you 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 ask hard questions and good questions there, Todd. Um, yes, I think here's the here's the thing is that, um, and I've just I mean and 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 to 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 be, be very honest, on my own journey in the last 10, 15 years has taken me more and more into you know really loving and engaging with the best of of um, Catholic uh, theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly my dude Balthazar. Um, mm-hmm. I love, I read him every day mm-hmm. uh, for, for at least 12 years now, every day. So, I mean, I have a great love of, you know, the Catholic mm-hmm. identity of the, of the, of the, of the church. Where I find myself still struggling with even a, with someone like Balthazar is very convincing to me on almost <laughs> everything is the area of ecclesiology. Mm. Because uh, I think, um, I mean, he's much part of the resourcement theologians who go back to right. the sources. Mm-hmm. And he's in love of the Bible. I've never read anyone who loved the Bible more than him. So, um, but I think where it comes to the church, I, fi- I find that it stops short of going back to scriptural uh, phenomena, mm-hmm. which is much more flexible than, than what is now we see as, you know, a, a more higher Catholic ecclesiology, which is yeah. incredibly inflexible. Uh, and institutional, it's very hard to find that in the scriptures. And I, th- I think what is needed there is to say, let's, a- let's affirm that structure is needed. You do need that, and you can affirm it. History is history. But yes. can we at least put a question mark against it with, from scripture itself and saying, yes, but in order to be that kind of church, the one that Jesus initiated and started that was very successful in the first three centuries, by the way, uh, without all the stuff that we think we need to get the job done, was able to get the job done from you know, as low as 25,000 to upwards to 20 million, depending on uh, who in yeah. counts. Right. But against the odds, without church buildings, without, you know, right. you know legal status and, you know, Christendom kind of relationships. Yeah. Yeah, as, as you would want to say, it was a movement. It was a movement. Yeah. So I think I think to go, I say I believe in latency. I believe that the answer is latent. This is Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is latent within us. Mm-hmm. Go deeper than what you think. It's deeper mm-hmm. than what we think. It's it go it goes beyond maybe tenth twelfth century, you know, ecclesiology or you know where we or reformed era. Yeah, the ecclesiology. Yeah, definitely. You know, they've got stuck there. Hi, this is Ryan Flanagan, founder of the music project Liturgical Folk and the director of music at Resurrection South Austin. I am very excited to announce that C4SO is partnering with Liturgical Folk to host its first ever liturgical songwriting retreat. The retreat will be held on March 10th and 11th on a beautiful farm just south of Nashville, Tennessee. If you are a songwriter of church music, this retreat is designed for you to catch your breath connect and collaborate with other artists to create new devotional songs for the sake of others. The registration fee is just $99 and includes meals as well as a Lenten concert by Liturgical Folk. If you'd like to learn more or sign up for the retreat, visit c4so.org slash songwriting dash retreat. I will be leading this retreat and I look forward to connecting with you there. Yeah, what I hear you saying that could be could work very well for the Anglican tribe that I'm in is, you know, I'm in a tribe that loves the Bible and would have what we'd call a high view of, you know, scriptural authority. So great, let's reread the Gospels, let's reread Acts, let's reread the missiology of Paul, 
you know, go back to Roland Allen, you know, missionary methods, St. Paul's are ours. And as you say, go back into the sources to find an imagination for uh, doing mission, for being ambassadors of the kingdom that's not contrary to a modern or reformed ecclesiology, but actually predates it. Predates it and therefore uh, informs and qualifies it. Yeah. You know, interesting thing is, Todd, you know, um, so again, like I'm engaging a lot in in Catholic uh, brothers and sisters. Um, So I work with a a fair bit with Divine Renovation and with Mm -hmm. Father James Mallon, who's a dear friend. In fact, the two of us just visited the Pope recently. Yeah. <laughs> Look funny with a few others. That was a funny experience. Great, wonderful experience. But I also say what it, what I think I think I, I think I'm right in this to say that what, what I think what they're able to do, now what they were going to be doing is translating the forgotten way. It's quite a radical text into Catholic. Mm. So we do, we're working on how to do that. What the Catholics have got, and I think by, by extension Anglican in rich Anglican theology, which I find myself deeply resonant with, by the way, will you have me? <laughs> <laughs> is is um, is the magisterium? Yeah. So when you when you when you look into the magisterium, it's a treasure house of resource, right? Right now, the church dips into certain well tried parts of the magisterium in order to you know sustain itself. But yeah, there are other parts where it actually looks very movemental. Actually, legitimize fivefold very quickly. So you, mm. it's all there. You just have, to have the canon lawyers and people who know how to go get the stuff. Yeah. And then once you've got it, you justify. It. You'll find movements. Gregory. Uh, yeah. Probably the founder of Anglican, kind of the founder of mm. Anglicanism, I think. Certainly, uh, Pope Gregory, um, very important. You know, you see movements there. You know, you see it in the Celtic tradition, which also is incredibly movemental. So you don't have to look terribly far. You just have to have the paradigm, know what you're looking for. Yeah. You can yeah. find it. But you and I were talking, I don't know, a month or two ago, just as friends and realizing that you had just finished your book, Read Jesus, Remaking the Church and Our Founder's Image. And I was just finishing a book that will be out next year from InterVarsity called um, What Jesus Intended finding true faith in the rubble of bad religion. And we were both uh, remarking on how our journeys have brought us back, like all this ecclesial thinking, all this missional thinking has brought us back to a centrality of Jesus. Say a bit about, for instance, you and Michael Wright, uh, Jesus changes everything. <laughs> so so we've talked sort of 40,000 foot about missiology, ecclesiology, like, bring us back to the core. What is it you've been thinking the last year or two that makes for you Jesus central to this whole conversation? Well, Jesus is always central. We just lose sight of that centrality, inch by inch. No one intends it, but you find yourself focusing on things that you never really, you know, you never, you, you never intended to lose sight of. Um, yeah. And that's why we suggest in the name of the book that we wrote is Read Jesus. You've got to constantly go back to, to Jesus to know yourself. And it's this re- recalibration dimension of, you know, if most computers need co- co- recalibration every now and again, I mean, if you, especially if you've got a PC, yeah. uh, you need to reboot it mm-hmm. because it goes out, it's algorithms go out. And the reboot is the essential part. Is the, and you might call this renewal, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I think it's this constant going back to the source, the originating founder in this case, and saying, do we align? And, you know, insofar we don't, let's, let's attune ourselves, let's align ourselves to Jesus here. And this is important, and I think we need it every year, let alone every hundred. We need it, I think a church needs to do this regularly. And why yeah. I say this, Todd, and this has been a great 
grief uh, in mm -hmm. me and I would argue depression mm -hmm. in the last five or six years. Um, uh, struggling genuinely with a great sense of spiritual grief in, mm -hmm. in, in, in seeing it. If I say now, if a, if a group of people claiming to be a church don't look, act, sound, and think like Jesus, then is it a church? And I don't know how to answer. Well, I, I say it might have been a church. It was a church, but it isn't a church. Because the fundamental measure of a people who claim to be a church has to be Jesus. What other measures do we have? To what degree do we correspond to our founder and his, his way? And or, I, you, or using the Pauline language, head and body. Right. <laughs> and in, in the head contains everything. And, you know, right. absolutely right. The head and body, which are organically connected. When those are out of sync, something fundamental is wrong. And I think this is our biggest challenge of our time, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, because we find ourselves as churches very, you know, we do things that Jesus wouldn't do. We, we get excited about things that Jesus wouldn't get excited about. In fact, he would stand. <laughs> How is yeah. that possible that we would do things contrary to our Father? Yeah. I think this is the, this is the question. And um, so, yeah, that's, um, we've just republished that book because we felt it was important yeah. uh, for the conversation right now. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I've been saying for a couple of years now or more that from, and again, this is a, an overstatement, you know, just probably just sort of for the fun of it to be, to be provocative in the good sense of provocative, is that for me, Christian spirituality is simply an exercise in taking Jesus seriously. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, you know, think of this new begin language, embody, announce, and demonstrate. Yeah. So yeah. Jesus embodies in his being the rule and reign of God. He mm -hmm. demonstrates it in his deeds of power, and he announces it in his teaching. Well, how do we take that serious, and how does that inform, inform not just missiology, the way we're talking about it today, but how does it inform discipleship? How does it inform Christian spirituality? And of course, I agree with you that if we lose that, we have lost everything that's central. And like you said, Amongst well-meaning people, it easily gets supplanted by, yeah, just, uh, you, know, you know, here in, here in America, political things yeah, um, nice. or in our denominations, whatever the current denominational fight is, and we lose that centrality of Jesus. And, and I'm just so with you. Uh, and I think when we talked, I told you that in this book that'll come out next year, I'm really working with Ben Meyer and Tom Wright's ideas on the aims of Jesus. So yeah. the title of the book, What Did Jesus Intend? Mm -hmm. And what I'm really trying to do in the book is it's aimed at nuns and duns and skeptics and people are just fed up with the church. And I'm mm -hmm. just trying to say, well, what if this is who Jesus really was? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. can we can we rally around this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I would argue, actually, the very thing we we can rally around the only thing that's going to bind us together again as a broken church, right, is Jesus. Yeah. And this is, can I be, oh, gosh. Well, I don't mind personally being controversial, but I don't want this to be misinterpreted. But um, but let me say it anyway. I, I have, I'm, I'm having much more trouble with the language of the word gospel-centered, the phrase. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is evangelical. Um, right. Same kind of idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gospel centered. Well, you see, I don't th see anywhere in scripture we're commanded to be gospel centered. That's one issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> one, it, it's a doctrine, not a person. Yes. How do you, and how can you, you know, how, how do you live that out? Right. And secondly, it's a disputed doctrine. 
I mean, there's got everyone's going after two thousand years. We still haven't got a handle on that, nor should we. I think it's much bigger than meaning people are still arguing about what is the gospel. That's right. Well, we've yeah. got, so we hold on to reductionist views of the gospel, and then say right. that we centered around a reduced understanding of the gospel. Yeah. But you never commanded to be gospel centered. You meant to be Jesus centered. You can be gospel right. focused, if you will. But, yeah. You know, energized, or you know, you, I think we should be, but I think it's the wrong center, bro. Gospel can become conceptual, ideological, uh, something to fight over, a theory, an ism, where I hear you calling us back to that which that which we're commenting on with all those isms. Like, I just hear you calling us back to Jesus. Yeah, there's no other, <laughs> I don't know how else we get out of the isms other yeah. than returning to Jesus. I sound like a philosopher here, but there, and maybe I heard this from Dallas, I can't remember, Willard, but there's the thing there's our observations of the thing, and then there's our interpretations of the thing. And all I hear you saying is that gospel has become a word that is just interpretations, but it sometimes actually keeps it from the thing itself. And in this case, the thing itself is a person. It keeps us from Jesus himself. Yeah. Add, add, add significant irony to this, right? Is that, yeah. um, uh, you know, in my current most current book, uh, Reframation, um, mm-hmm. Reframation. Um, it, uh, this the fundamental assumption is that you know we're reductionists, right? So in yeah. other words, what a reductionist does is can't deal with it. To, in order to understand a total truth, it reduces it down or analyzes truth into certain you know key components of the greater truth. The, the problem with reductionism is that it recognizes one part mm-hmm. and forgets that it comes from the whole. Now that sounds awfully like heresy, and I'm not. I'm. You can make this is go check the word heresis in 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 the New Testament. You'll find that it means that it's the heretic is someone is not someone who's a bad person who's trying to mess with your head. The her, heretic has actually discovered something others have overlooked or not mm. seen before. Yeah, or rediscovered something. Um, but the and there's nothing wrong with that. That's really good. But they become overexcited about it. The thing they've discovered and they've forgotten that it belongs to a greater truth, right? That yeah. qualifies it, and and that's the problem. The heretic is is the small-minded reductionist, mm. and gosh, we're all heretics. You've got a whole lot of people arguing a reduced understanding of the gospel and calling other people heretics. The irony, the incredible irony of that should kind of strike us. Yeah, uh, it's that anyway. So I just go on about it, but um, the only way to counter reductionism is by you know by putting one's kind of reduced truth in the, in, within the greater truth. And this is that idea of the Catholicity of truth. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's, uh, that's actually very helpful. So let me bring you back, though, to Anglicanism here for a bit, because I know you've traveled the world and have lots of friends in England, South Africa, and Australia who are Anglicans. Um, and again, I know you're not expert, but we have you here, and we have you here because we want to hear from you. I love Anglicanism, by the way. You need to know that. Oh, yeah, I know. That's, uh, I love it. I, I think it's got beautiful, beautiful theology. Yeah. So for our last moment here then, what would you ex- how would you assess, let's, let's narrow it to American uh, Anglicans, how would you assess what's, what's our greatest strength, you think, or opportunity, and what would you say would be a, a weakness or threat that we need to pay attention to as American evangelical Anglicans. I think I think your greatest strength um, would probably correspond to what I've already 
talked about is the Catholicity of the church and the truth. And I would say mm -hmm. beyond the church, but the, the truth itself. That, you know, one, you know, in the transcendentals, the truth is one. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, good, and true. But um, I think that's, man, that's incredible strength because, you you know, you can draw from a rich heritage yeah. uh, uh, and tradition uh, to find new senses of meaning and direction. Um, and I think that's, that's, so there's a great respect for the, you know, the Catholic side of your heritage. The reform side, of course, is also in there. Um, Catholic in form, if I remember correctly, and Protestant in theological expression, mm -hmm. which is the best of both worlds if you're going to have it. So yeah. I think that, that honestly, Catholic, uh, Anglicans have got that. And if you, when, when, you, when you negotiate that well, it's done really well, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Some wonderful thinkers and theologians. I think, again, if I'd said what the weakness is right now is that don't overfocus on one to the neglect of the others. Mm. Uh, don't become politicized and don't become ideological. Um, actually, I just uh, heard some t someone today um, posted this, and I, this really, gosh, it got to me. It's René Girard, the philosopher, uh, mm -hmm. said this, that which captivates us, controls us and becomes us. Mm. That which captivates us, controls us and becomes us. And I think that I, I, what I see now at the moment is that we've been captive to ideologies in the North American context particularly, and it's hard, yeah. to, hard to observe mm. someone who loves America. Very hard to see, but I think there's a fracturing going on and it's again i think my encouragement is to let go of ideologies and come back to jesus all right alan hirsch it's always great to see you and uh thanks for your work and uh thanks for being our friend we appreciate it my pleasure brother and uh, you know thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs>